Hi, I'm Matt Kane, Editor-in-Chief of Attitude, back with a very special episode of Attitude Heroes. Let me quickly remind you that Attitude Heroes is sponsored by the Great Britain Campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. You can check out their website at great.gov.uk. And our co-sponsors are Jaguar. If you'd like more information on their products, then you can visit the website jaguar.co.uk or look out for them in the latest issue of Attitude magazine. Depending on your age, you may or may not know much about my guest today, but I'd urge you to keep listening, even if the name Michael Cashman isn't immediately familiar, because he's done more than most to promote gay rights in the UK and across Europe. He started his career as an actor, 30 years ago, he created TV history after his character in EastEnders, Colin Russell, puckered up for the first gay kiss in a British soap opera. If you're not old enough to remember that, it's hard to believe just how much of a shock it caused at the time. Around the same period, he co-founded the LGBT rights charity Stonewall and has been campaigning tirelessly ever since. And as a lifelong Labour supporter, he's gone from the party's national executive to the European Parliament, where he was for 15 years, and on to the House of Lords, where he now sits as Baron Cashman of Limehouse. When I visited his home in Limehouse recently, he told me about the homophobic abuse he's encountered. Suddenly, all of these football supporters (gasps) piled in and it was packed. And as I'm going through, it parts like the Red Sea, and suddenly this voice went, AIDS carrier. (gasps) About the power of politics to affect gay rights. I saw changes come through, and I negotiated changes in places like Romania and Bulgaria, Cyprus, and I said, you can't have an unequal age of consent. And about his treatment by the tabloids. The Sun, with its uh, intelligent and informative headline, hadn't even appeared that the banner headline on the front page was East Benders. So, without any further ado, here is our seventh Attitude Hero and a truly remarkable man, Michael Cashman. Michael, thank you for having us here at your home in Limehouse. My manor, Baron Cashman of Limehouse. I know, and you say, I know, but you started life here as well, didn't you, without the title? Yes, I was born at the end of um, this street on a great big housing estate, that stunning time when, you know, to have your own council flat was incredible. And there was me and my four brothers and my mum and dad. He was, my dad was a docker, worked locally, and my mum office cleaner. She worked in the offices locally. So it's incredible that um, due to my late husband, uh, I'm, I'm back where I started. Oh, it was his plan to come back here. Well, he, Paul, Kai, we, we, we lived somewhere else and uh, uh, I was working at the time in the European Parliament and he said, look, I'll draw up a shortlist, don't you worry. And I should have known, I should have known that someone you love can often dupe you in the best way. <laughs> uh, and, I, and we turned up here, we, we did this list and we turned up here and I said, um, there's no price on the, um, on, on the papers. Anyway, it doesn't matter. And of course it did matter because it was way over our budget. But, but he knew as soon as I walked in, I'd go, oh, we've got to have it. And we did. And he brilliantly pre-negotiated. And because of him, uh, I mean, we had together 12 brilliant years here. And because of him, uh, I'm home. 
But at the same time, apart from the geography, everything else has changed in your life. I mean, first of all, you are Lord Cashman, Baron Cashman of Limehouse. Um, and, you know, you started off here the son of a docker, as you say. Do you ever kind of reflect on that journey? Every day. Every day. Um, I, I, uh, and I'm being serious. I do. I go, oh, my God, the life that I've had, the life I've got, often uh, there's a little back route uh, at work. You, you, you go in and there's a little back route that you can go. But I always choose to walk through Westminster Hall and look at the amazing space and look at that uh, stained window to remind myself uh, of the amazing privilege and the amazing journey that I've gone on. And the only sadness that I carry is that the one person who would have enjoyed it more than me is not here uh, to enjoy it with me, and that's, that's Paul. Um, but also, seriously, I think a lot of us who, certainly my generation, who, uh, who are gay, we grew up with a period of kind of, not self-denial, I never had self-denial, I was lucky. Um, I knew I was attracted to boys of my own age, and... Um, and got on with it. But, Good to uh, hear it. We'll hear a I, bit more about that in a minute. But I do think, <laughs> um, going back to the question, um, that a lot of us are waiting for someone to tap us on the shoulder when we've achieved something to say, no, no, it's not you we meant, it's somebody else. Uh, it's that syndrome where you, you're, you're waiting to be found out. Imposter syndrome. Yeah. Obviously, this is the 50th anniversary of the start of decriminalisation. Other than pinching yourself and thinking you can't believe you're at the heart of the political system now, um, how does it feel kind of reflecting on that long journey towards equal rights and now you are, you know, in this position of privilege? Well, what is interesting, actually, this coming weekend is Pride weekend, uh, this Thursday, the uh, the rainbow flag, the, the LGBT flag, will be handed over to the uh, Lord President of the House of Lords, Norman Fowler, uh, and that will be flown above the House of Lords this weekend. Mm -hmm. um, what was a bastion of opposition to LGBT equality? And it was. Um, Baroness Barker, Liz Barker, said uh, shortly after I was introduced in the House, she said, it's great that Lord Cashman's here. She said, but once upon a time, the only way certainly uh, gay men or lesbians could get into the House of Lords openly was by abseiling. Yeah, I remember because those lesbians abseiling again when you were debating Clause 28. They, they, the, it was the protest against Section yeah. 20, 28. How do I feel being there? I feel as you said, that it's an amazing privilege, but it's a privilege that needs to be worked. Um, all the time I'm raising the issues, uh, you know, I'm passionate about, passionate about human rights, the human rights of everyone. So it's still a wonderful opportunity to get things done. And that for me is what politics is about. Politics is about a couple of primary things, the courage to be unpopular hmm. and the courage to get things done. If we're looking at this 50th anniversary of the start of decriminalisation, 1967, you would have been, am I right in thinking you would have been 16? 16. And I was in a relationship where I couldn't enjoy the decriminalisation because I was 16, 
Lee was 24. Oh, my God, what's it right? So I was going to say to you, were, do you have any memories? Were you politically aware at the time? Do you remember decriminalisation? I didn't realise at the age of 16 you were in a relationship with no. a man. Yeah. God, you were an early starter then. I started earlier than that. <laughs> this idea that, that, that older men were predatory, if only. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, no, I, mean, I always thought that. I mean, I, I had to... Um, it, it's wonderful. I went to my first ever gay club at the age of 15 and a half. It was called Le Douce in Darbley Street. I'd just come back from a tour of Peter Pan, uh, a national tour, and this wonderful Scottish queen uh, said to me, he said, when we were in these tacky bar, back, little back bars in places like Blackpool, and he went, he, he said, uh, he said, darling, don't you worry about this. He says, this is near palace. He says, this is a shite hole. You, <laughs> you eat till I get you back to London. Ian Calvin Taylor, his name was. And he was 19, I was 15 and a half. Ian took me to this club and I walked in and my breath was taken away. It was incredible. Boys of my own age and older dancing with one another, you know, embracing, dancing. Um, and, uh, and, and whilst I was there, I, I spotted Lee, not the first time, and tracked him down and tracked him down and tracked him so down. So you were the predatory one, even though I finally you were 15. got him. <laughs> so, got yeah, so I remember that decriminalisation, and I remember Lee, Lee saying to me that um, we still had to pretend. You, the rule then was that you, uh, if you lived with another guy, you had at least two beds or two bedrooms. Um, um, and Lee said to me, if anybody asks, uh, we're cousins. Now, what does that do to a young 16-year-old and a young 24-year-old? Well, you know from the start that you are taught, you absorb the message that it is a dirty secret you need to hide from anybody. Yeah. Yeah. And how can that relationship be healthy in any way when you're... Well, you said that the fascinating thing was it, it, it's, it is healthy... Um, but, but it's healthy because you have the courage to battle against what people tell you and what the outside world suggests. And it was healthy for me because I was in a career. You know, remember, I became an actor at the age of 12. That changed my life. That put me on a trajectory that arguably ended me up. If it hadn't started at the age of 12, I don't think I would have ended up now where I am. I certainly wouldn't have done the things politically that I've done. But I was in a profession where you could be open about your sexuality, but interestingly, even at that time, you couldn't flaunt it. You could flaunt it in the rehearsal rooms. You could be as camp and as outrageous and as gay as... Although we didn't have the term gay then. So what people, did you say, queer, people, well, you had, Yeah, but, but the interesting thing was, and this is the real difference, and hopefully it will come over in sound, if you defined yourself, you said, I'm queer. But if somebody used it as an insult, you were a queer. Mm. And it was hard k And if you actually defined yourself, it was very soft k um, You'd say to someone, are you queer? Right, I want, to ask you about, I want to ask you about the gay scene, actually, first, because we have this strand in Attitude that I brought in called Stepping Out, which is we used to do coming out experiences. And um, we've heard so much of that, and it's kind of, you know, well-trodden territory. I said... Going for your first night out on the gay scene, even now, is a massive thing with so many mixed emotions, you know, fear, excitement, shame, being sexually turned on. But going for your that first night... That happens on my nights out in gay bars now. <laughs> <laughs> but going for your first night out in a gay bar before it was legal, 
And you were worried about raids and this, that and the other. But, you know, emotionally, that must have been, you know, such a kind of intense experience. It was. I remember going back to the tour that I was on, there was an actor who was a gay, uh, an older man, and he really uh, disapproved of Ian uh, taking me to gay bars because first of all I shouldn't have been drinking I think the you couldn't buy a drink until you were 21 you were a real rule breaker yeah. weren't you and look yeah. at you now in the house of lords that's right it shows you what a port and lemon can do for you <laughs> port and lemon in a blackpool bar um, and and they were always these tiny little um, bars stuck at the back and there was always you know uh, some old queen in the corner who would sneer at you and whisper you'll be ugly too dear don't you worry um, <laughs> but but in, in, in a strange way they were safe places and the idea of a raid you put outside of your head the thing you were more worried about interestingly was going in and see somebody who knew you from your real life because when you went into... You know, my mum and dad used to go to a gay bar here in the East End, famous gay bar uh, that all the dockers and the celebrities used to go to called Charlie Brown's. Gay docker, gay celebrities and dockers? Yeah. And your mum and dad? Yeah. I need to go to this bar. Does it, it still exist? It, it's in. <laughs> it doesn't exist any longer. But, it, but, but that was the interesting thing about the East End and a lot of the working, the, 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 the working docks. Because they had people that came from other parts of the world, people were less judgmental. It yeah, was an amazing yeah. spectral primary colours kind of place. So there were drag queens and there were merchant seamen and there were dockers beside them and stevedores. And, you know, the characters that my mum and dad used to bring home to stay was incredible. No wonder I've got a vivid imagination. But those pubs, a lot of the gay pubs, uh, were around the docks and there was another one, the City Arms and I had a little, I worked for Lou Clench in the corner shop and she, I sometimes used to have to cycle onto the Isle of Dogs for the paper round and she used to say Nobby, when you can't go past that City Arms you cycle fast well of course I used to stop, park the bike against the pub wall, stand on the bike and look in at all of these women who looked like, like my Aunt Eileen <laughs> Not knowing that they were drag queens, so so it was a part. It was a, it was a part of the fibre of the area in which I lived, and also remember that living in the East End then we had the original Chinatown still here. Oh, yeah, yeah, Pennyfields yeah. were still here, um, but I think if you if if one looked at the dock areas around the country, there's probably a common theme. Um, well, it does make sense, like you say, they have a window onto the wider world. Um, revolving doors onto the wider world, actually people coming and going. But it's also interesting that there's this kind of um, accepted wisdom that the middle classes and those who were educated were more gay-friendly and the working classes less so, whereas actually this microcosm that you're describing kind of disproves that idea. Uh, I think it does disprove that idea. I've always said there's a great deal in common between the working class and the so-called upper class. Certainly their attitudes are conservative uh, and their attitudes to sex, and it's very similar. Do whatever you do, but you do it in private. You don't get caught. And that used to be the theme that drove life in this country. And it was the working classes, the, the middle classes, that intellectually challenged it, but I don't think were that comfortable when it happened in their own families. 
So what about your mum and dad then, working class? How comfortable were they when it happened in their family? Um, well... If they I, were going to gay bars and hanging out with drag queens and yeah, gay sailors because, anyway. Because for them, it was a great night out. But what were they like when, it's, when suddenly their son was... Um... Well, I, I, I can't... I don't think with me and I have a, a younger brother who's gay... Uh, so, you know, the, f- the four sons, two gay, two heterosexual. Um, <clears throat> and so what I decided, because I became a child actor, my parents, in a way, looked at this child that was having this exotic life. And I knew that I, ha- I, I mustn't create expectations that I, I would not meet. So, for instance, when the first wedding big family wedding that I went to and it was my brother's um, they said you know bring a girl and I said no I'll bring a mate and I took a mate I didn't take Lee who I was then with I took a mate because I knew that if I if I went with a girl I'd start to create an expectation I was always vague and evasive rather than lying so I was I was lucky and I, I I think in a way I acclimatized them to the fact that I left home at 16 and, and moved in with uh, a guy. For them, it was a flatmate. Um, so what, at what age did you dispel them of that notion um, that it, it was just a flatmate? I, saying it to their faces, uh, 25, 25 years old, when my youngest brother had been involved in a, uh, a hit-and-run accident and, and was on a life support machine. And... Um, and my father kind of tried to say he ended up where he was in, on this life support machine because he was having a relationship with a man. And I just said to my father in this relative's room at the London hospital, I said, uh, if you're attacking Danny for that, you're attacking me for my relationship with uh, Andy, a guy I was then with. Um, and my father stormed out and I went to go after him and my brilliant Aunt Eileen, she went, leave him, leave him. And I went home and I told my mum. And she said, she said, I know, darling. I've I've always known. I've never met a mum yet who hasn't. Um, Some of my friends haven't had such brilliant responses from their mothers. Um, And my dad, he didn't want to know. But the brilliant thing was, and I, I, through Paul, I finally understood my father. And I think he realised in all that I did, you know, the going on news at 10 and shouting out about being gay and causing ructions, uh, he realised that, I think, that I had become my father's son, that if he'd been gay and he'd had those opportunities, he would have done exactly the same. And through Paul and Paul's love of sport and his love of my father and their mutual love of all things sporting, um, I finally understood this man that everybody else loved and that I couldn't because in the end I realised I wasn't sure that he loved me. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because, you know, I know lots of gay men who've been resentful about their parents' reactions to their sexuality. But at the same time, if they were living in a society which told them it was wrong, it was dirty, it was disgusting, in your era it was gays will be lonely and unsuccessful and shunned by society and unhappy. In my era it was gays will get AIDS and die. Yes. Um, 
Why would any parent who wants the best for their child embrace that news? Why would they jump up and down and celebrate it? I mean, it's different now because they've got so many examples of that not being true, but, you know, you can see how parents would struggle with it who, on the, on the level of wanting their child to be happy rather than necessarily thinking it's wrong or disgusting in itself. I understand what you're saying. And that period where, yes, gays were you know, certainly gay men were depicted as going to live a lonely life, bereft of children and uh, a future. Uh, but, but nonetheless, I think a, a parent knowing fully their child is a gift um, and that therefore they can support and nurture and love you. My mum always used to say, particularly my mum, my dad wasn't uh, an emotionally dis demonstrative man, um, he, he was funny. He was amazing, really. Um, but my mum used to say, um, I just want my boys to be happy. Let's talk about the politics then, because you've told us the personal side. So when, in that kind of journey between going to gay bars at the age of 15, living with another man at the age of 16, come and get to your parents at 25, when did you start to be switched on to politics? When did you start to be angry about inequality? Because I want to talk about the rest of your life and the context of the history of, you know, the journey towards gay equality, gay rights. When were you switched on to politics? When were you politicised? I, th uh, I think I was politicised around... Honestly, when I went on my first gay pride march, and that would have been around about... 1978. Um, I knew about the politics with a small p of inequality because I, you couldn't show, you couldn't hold somebody in public, you couldn't demonstrate your affection or love for another man. And how did you feel in, about in that? Public. Um, I got on with it be because I, we had our pubs, and that was a great thing. It wasn't until uh, a little later when it all fell from our eyes. We had our pubs, our clubs, our bars, even our saunas. Um, so, so the seduction of the commercial scene uh, stops you thinking about what you don't have because for a certain point in your day or your weekend, you have that freedom, you have that liberty. You, you're, if like me, you're fortunate, you can, you can manufacture your own social and working environment, an actor, they were interested in whether you could do the performance, get it on, get it on on time. Um, I didn't get that, that political agitation until the mid-70s, and then going on the Gay Pride March in London and seeing the numbers of police that had to protect us from the hostility of some people in the crowds. So what were they like then, those early Gay Pride marches? Well, there'd be about 500, 700 of us. We'd march along Oxford Street. And uh, people at the sides would just call and get some, insults. Some people would just stand and gulp. There's very few cheering and waving us on. Very. Not like um, it is now. No. Um, and, and we have to remember that in the, in, the, in the 70s, which was swinging, it's wrong to say the 60s were swinging, the 70s were swinging, um, the, the kind of liberation, the flower power mm. from San Francisco. Um, so, so there was a kind of uh, a sense of, uh, of liberation, but, but it wasn't evident on the streets. And, uh, and we would march along shouting out, uh, two, four, six, eight, is that copper really straight? 
Uh, and the other thing we used to shout out is, we're here, we're queer, and we're not going shopping. But a lot of us did, soon as we passed <laughs> the big department stores, especially CNAs. Um, uh, and you, CNAs, and, fucking heck. And we ended up at the University of London Union. That's how small it was. So, yeah, that, that, that was the politicisation. And then it was really punched home uh, when Thatcher got elected. But sticking with the, sticking with the gay stuff, it was... So you were a co-founder of Stonewall, and am I right in thinking that came about as a direct response to Clause 28, That's right. which was a Thatcher-led thing? In 1988. What, so That's what right. was it when you... I mean, you were, in, on East, you were acting on EastEnders at the time, which I want to talk about later, and obviously all the political storylines you did must have politicised you further, but what was it about Section 28 in particular that really ignited such outrage that you actually, you, Ian McKellen, Lisa Power, set up Stonewall as a lobby group for gay rights? You, you cannot separate the opportunism of Section 28 and the reaction to Section 28 uh, from AIDS and HIV that was cutting down swathes of uh, gay and bisexual men and people who were uh, injecting uh, um, and haemophiliacs, but particularly the depiction mm. uh, of AIDS, and I quote, as a gay plague, uh, and the Chief Constable of Manchester uh, saying that we were swirling around in a cesspit oh, yeah, of our, of our own, own making. making. You, you have that going on. You have day in, day out in The Sun, The Daily Mail uh, and others, the fact that just by sitting next to a gay man using a cup or a glass that a gay man has used that you can catch AIDS, catch AIDS, into that a government then decides to accept a backbench amendment which uh, seeks to discriminate and encourage discrimination and misrepresentation of lesbians, gay men, bisexuals, uh, that, that says you cannot, a local authority shall not promote homosexuality. And we said, what do you mean by promote? They wouldn't give us a definition. So we argued, okay, if a local authority has a theatre or a library or an art centre, then you can't have the books of Oscar Wilde, the, the bisexual sonnets of Shakespeare. You can't do the works of Genet. You can't do the works of Joe Orton. Uh, you can't do the music of, uh, of Tchaikovsky. It was a cowardly cowardly amendment because instead of being explicit about what it wanted to do was actually saying that it's teaching that it's okay if you're gay they didn't want that and in fact it was all premised around two books one was called jenny lives with erica martin and the other one was the milkman's on his way about a young boy who fantasized because he fancied the milkman the daily mail the Daily Mail, and I say that with such venom and hatred in my voice, uh, has always uh, tried to misrepresent minorities and certainly came to the fore oh, in its misrepresentation uh, of this issue and said that these books were used and given to children in classrooms. They were given to teachers as teaching aids should they have a child in their school who might be oh, lesbian, no. gay, or bisexual? So does that count as promoting homosexuality if a, if a teacher is defending? But according to them, a child from homophobic bullying. According, according to them, yes. 
Equally, they said uh, that we, we, they could not promote the acceptance of, uh, of same-sex relations as a pretend family relation. So they wouldn't even recognise us as a family. It couldn't even be recognised as a pretend family. So it was blatant opportunism, unforgivable. The damage that it has done and continues to do. And I'll always remember what Shakespeare brilliantly said. And Shakespeare is brilliant because... What he said then matters now. He said, the evil that men do lives on. The good is oft interred with their bones. Section 28 has now been replicated in Russia. They tried to replicate it in the Ukraine and in the European Parliament. Me, as co-president of the LGBT intergroup and others, said, if you do that, then you don't get visa liberalisation. When they tried to introduce it into Lithuania and other EU countries, we said, if you do that, you are acting against the principles of the Treaty of the European Union and there will be sanctions. So, so, so you... But, but it's... You, you talked about, and this is really important to me, you talked about me being involved in, in bringing about those changes. I argue that it, it wasn't... What we have now isn't because of my generation or the generation immediately before. It goes back over a thousand generations when somebody stood up and said, no, you can't do that. You can't talk about me in that way. You can't talk about my son, my daughter. And and so few people did stand up and say that. No, but but actually when you look back, they went to prison. They lost their lives. They lost their livelihoods. They had their children taken away from them because they were lesbian, gay or bisexual, and in some instances trans. And we always need to remember that what we have now is not because of Stonewall, it's not because of Peter Tatchell, it's not because of outrage, it's because generations have given freedoms in order for us to pick the fruits of equality from the tree that they planted. And that tree needs to be passed on and nurtured by the next generation and the next generation, because it could be chopped down. In terms of your commitment to watering that tree, um, why did you decide to channel it into becoming a member of the European Parliament rather than the British Parliament, say? Europe became a place where I I associated kind of liberalisation and evolution of, of values. Right, here's the question. What has membership of the EU done for us as gay men, specifically. Um, okay. First of all, you have to remember that the European Union was set up uh, after the ashes of the Second World War, that we would never turn away again, that actually an attack upon one was an attack upon all. Um, and the economic clout that you had from being six countries working together was mm. greater. What, what did gay LGBT people... Uh, specifically get in 1997. Uh, Tony Blair went off, one of the first things he did once he was elected, and signed off the Treaty of Amsterdam. And the Treaty of Amsterdam was the first time ever in Article 13 that the uh, 15 countries of the European Union were given a legal base to take action to combat discrimination on the grounds of sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, religion, belief, disability. Um, And from that we built 
we brought forward, I had the action program to combat discrimination on those grounds, including sexual orientation, which was nearly 100 million euro to work throughout the EU over five years um, to end, to begin to inform and bring about an end to discrimination. And if you think about the 15 years you were there, that was a period of huge change for attitudes towards gays and, you know, the drive towards equal rights for gays and LGBT people in general. How do you see the pace things moved at in Britain compared to the rest of Europe? Because it's amazing when you think about countries like Poland, you know, where it was illegal shortly before they were allowed to join the EU, and then suddenly they're having to bring in all this legislation. So you've got rights on one hand, but then you've got attitudes on the other, and you've got an insight into all that from your time in the European Parliament. Well, what they had to do was... um, Bring in the rights that currently existed. It's a bit like joining uh, a club, a gay club, tennis club, right? Those are the rules. If you want to join that club, you've got to sign up to the rules. It's not an a la carte menu. It's such a powerful thing for them to, to say you will not get membership unless you accept gay people in law. Yeah, uh, uh, and that's absolutely right. So when Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Malta wanted to join, indeed when Spain wanted to join, we said, okay, but you have to respect the rules and the laws as they currently exist. Then when they come in and new laws are being proposed, uh, they can object in council, as, as the governments do when they're operating in the Council of Ministers. But, but I saw changes come through and I negotiated changes in places like Romania and Bulgaria, Cyprus, and I said, You can't have an unequal age of consent. You have to bring this forward. There cannot be discrimination in these areas. And unless you do it now, uh, we will organise within the Parliament so that we vote against the accession of those countries. It's such an amazing power, isn't it? That, you know, by banding together and that economic power, you are able to say... um, to these countries like Romania that you have to change and you have to be more accepting in order to join the club. Yeah, you you say you have to change your laws, but we know changing laws is only a part of it. And then then when I went on to go to Bucharest for, you know, I think I went to the second ever gay pride march in in Bucharest. Oh, God, what was that like? And it was frightening. It was frightening. You know, we had over, I mean, about 2,000 armed police protecting 300 people. There were water cannons, there were helicopters, there were taxis at the end to get us away because there were thugs at the end of the march there to beat people up. When I went on the gay pride march in Sofia, the tolerance march in Warsaw, you realise that the attitudes have got to be changed. But unless you have the laws, and that's what I mean about the courage in politics, we, and you kind of asked, well, you asked it, in relation to Europe, we made amazing progress in this country from 97 onwards. That was the first start of equal legislation coming in, 1998. Oh, I know, I remember it, yeah, yeah. Uh, Since 1967, when the partial decriminalisation, and then 1991, when John Major ended the bar on uh, homosexuals being prevented from serving in the Foreign Office and the diplomatic service. Nothing, certainly nothing in law. It happened because we got organised in this country, we won the arguments with politicians, we started to challenge the arguments against with the media, and then politicians in government had the courage to take action in advance of public opinion. 
And let's just take a quick pause there. We'll get back to Michael in just a moment, but I want to say a quick hello to everyone who's left a review for us. We've been absolutely delighted by the response to these interviews since we started back in January. We've now got listeners as far afield as the United States, Australia, Japan, Spain and Slovakia. And here in the UK, hello if you're listening in Chester, Stoke-on-Trent, Hackney or any of the other towns and cities where Attitude Heroes is proving popular. Now, we'd love to hear from you, especially if you've been inspired by any of the stories you've heard in the series. So please do leave a comment and a review or get in touch with us via the magazine. A quick reminder that Attitude Heroes is sponsored by the Great Britain Campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. You can check out their website at great.gov.uk. And our co-sponsors are Jaguar. If you'd like more information on their products, then you can visit the website jaguar.co.uk or look out for them in the latest issue of Attitude magazine. And now, let's get back to Michael. So you told us that you were a child actor, but you first became really famous for the role as Colin in EastEnders in August 1986. And that was an interesting time because we've talked about the political context, but you were starting to get people like Andy Bell in Erasure, now lives down the road, we had on the podcast a few months ago, um, being out in the public eye, the hysteria around the AIDS crisis. And then Colin appears in Albert Square. Initially, he's in the closet. And then when his secret comes out, there's some resistance, isn't there, from the other, re- the other residents of Albert Square. Mm. But he won them round. He did. And interestingly, uh, Doc Cotton had a really nasty son called Nick. I remember nasty Nick. And uh, Nick was always giving Doc, wonderful Doc, oh, lovely Dot, uh, always giving her a hard time. And it was funny that they chose the gay character as the one who finally stood up to Nick Cotton and physically threw him out of the pub and threw him out of the square. Um, so Colin won people around. I mean, in, in the first three months, the, you know, the, the, there were women who, uh, you know, tried to make a play for him and he went, oh, no, 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 sorry. Um, <clears throat> and so then, he was always in... So even though he was in the closet at first, he was always intended to be a gay character. Yes, when I met Julius Smith and Tony Holland, the uh, original creators of the show, and Julia... Uh, remained as the executive producer. Um, we'd worked together on Angels and we'd fallen out really badly. So when EastEnders started, I loved the show. Um, Paul and I used to say, great, but I'll never be in it. So when she asked me to go in to see them and talk about it, um, she said, this is the part. This is the next three years storylines. Right at the beginning, yeah. you were so... We want you... I mean, you know, in general outline. And she said, and she said, um, we want you to play the part. She said, uh, you've become a better actor. I thought, thank you. Um, <laughs> That's a slightly shady yeah, backhand, yeah, backhanded yeah. compliment. That was Julia. She was, you know, she was there in your face. Um, and so I knew from the very beginning that uh, the, the, the kind of story journey that he would go on uh, that it wouldn't be for about three months until he finally uh, revealed himself in the square. Because Julia said, and I remember this is fascinating, uh, she said, 
I couldn't do the complete rehearsal. It was done in a very different way then. Uh, she said, OK, look, just turn up on that last day. She said, you choose the clothes, whatever you want. She said, turn up, we'll do one rehearsal, then you can shoot the scenes. Um, and, I, and I turned up and I had a red jacket and she went, no. She said, not that colour, because that colour says, look at me. And Colin wouldn't have been like that. Yeah, and I thought that was really fascinating. And so, therefore, that was a brilliant uh, kind of psychological marker for me to remember playing the character, that he didn't want to be the focus of attention. Because he was hiding a secret about yeah. himself. Yeah, he was a graphic designer, you know, he was a, a nice man, he listened to people. A bit of a yuppie from what I remember. He, he was a yuppie, he had the first Spider-Fax. <laughs> Which, which was the equivalent of having, you know, the latest iPhone now. Um, and, um, and, and that time when he said to Angie, lovely, she's saying, come on, in the, in the Vic, come on, last orders, drink up, drink up. And he says, oh, do you mind if I... And she went, it's all right, darling, you stay. And she gets him a drink and she says, but troubles? He went, yeah, yeah. And she went, men... Who'd have them, eh? And I went, yeah. No, no, what I mean is, she went, no, it's all right, darling, I know. And that was how they revealed him. And I said that those people who knew, who'd been watching and suspected, the scream went up across the gay UK going, ah! And then the others going, no, he's not, is he? Um, well, and also, we've got to say that at the time, this was the time when there were only four TV channels and there would have been, what, 18, 20 million people watching his yeah. And also, before I went in, uh, The Sun, with its uh, intelligent and informative headline, hadn't even appeared. The banner headline on the front page was East Benders. Oh, so did what? So they knew... So, the so they sun... broke the story that... But, right. but the way, again, the, they used to break these stories. The BBC would neither confirm nor deny it. And so the public still weren't sure. And because he was, he was such an ordinary guy, he didn't conform to the gay television stereotype. He wasn't camp mincing and camp and he wasn't mm, all of that. Um, so, so there was a, 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 a... The degree of mystery was maintained. But... There were questions for, in Parliament as to why there were a gay character was right. being introduced into the show, into a family show. Right, so, it, so if this is the case, and if you knew at the beginning what you were taking on, three years of storylines, and a lot of those storylines were quite political. You had gay bashing, you had the boyfriend who was under the age of consent, which wasn't yep. equal at the time, which was 21 for gay people. So it must have been, you know, you've described this context, the son saying these horrible things, all this anti-gay legislation going through Parliament shortly afterwards, that was a big thing for you to take on. Did you think long and hard about it? Did you speak to your partner? Did you speak to your mum and dad? You know, what kind of internal dialogue did you have to have? <sighs> the internal dialogues were endless. Julia and Tony, <clears throat> um, I left them at 10 to 1. I'd been with them about 50 minutes, and Julia said just before I left... So you'll do it. And I said, Julia, I can't. I've got to go home. I've got to talk to Paul. I've got to talk to my mum and dad. She looked at Tony. She went, I told you to be bloody sensible about it, didn't I? <laughs> uh, but I did say to her, I said, you have to tell me how I can deal with the tabloids. And she said, I can't. She did said, they not help you? Did they not have, no. like, a press office and all that in They had a days? press office, but the press office... In those days, the BBC would not intervene. They would defend their show. That was their product. But it was up to the actor... 
Uh, to so they wouldn't defend the, story, the, the issues explored in the storyline? No, they couldn't. They, they, yes, they could talk about the issues explored, but they couldn't defend or advise the actor on how to deal with the intrusion of the media, nor would they, because they said that was a thing between the artist and the artist's management. It's changed very much since then. This was very much the old guard. Um, and I asked Paul, and Paul said, absolutely do it. Um, I asked my mum and dad, and they were absolutely fine. Um, and, uh, and how old were you at this stage, then? Uh, 86, I was 35. Oh, so it was 10 years after you'd come out to your mum and dad? Yeah. And, um, and what was your relationship with your dad like by that stage? It, it was still quite difficult, still quite difficult, quite, quite um, uh, monosyllabic between us. Um, but he gave you the right monosyllable when you were asking yeah. for support. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, when, when I subsequently came out on national television leading the march against Section 28, he said actually to my mum, he went, I don't mind him being gay, but does he have to go on the bleeding news about it? <laughs> um, but, but I, so I... Uh, and Paul and I took a decision. It's interesting, interesting, the first week I was there, I got a call to the press office and they conveyed the message from the News of the World saying they would offer me £15,000 for my storyline. That was a huge amount of money then. Um, Your personal storyline? For my my story, my personal story, um, my life story. And then they said, whatever I want it to be. But, presumably, were they setting you up for a fall? I mean, the News of the World weren't... And, and thankfully, I, Paul and I took the decision that I wouldn't give an interview to anyone because they would try to bring me down or bring the character down, and we said that both were too important. But the news of the world outed Paul to his family and his home community uh, on the centre pages of their newspaper. Just a minute, though. Sorry to ask a stupid question, but how would he, would he, if he was publicly your boyfriend, did that not involve a certain level of being out anyway? Well, if you were out and he was living with you, he was, uh, but we weren't out as a couple because he wasn't out to his mum and stepdad. He was so many different levels of being out, out in of those course. days. Weren't I, I said, the, but, but there's still, it's still now. Somebody said to me the other day at a conference, "When did you, when did you come out?" And I said, "You know what? You never stop coming out. No, there's no. always a presumption that you have you used to be with me and Paul. They'd say, oh, it's lovely you brought your son.'" I said, "No, he's my husband." Um, so, but <laughs> so, so, so at the time, Michael was out. Michael, the actor, was out. Um, I didn't put out the press release about it. I didn't give interviews about it. It was no secret. Um, but our relationship wasn't out and Paul wasn't out. And we didn't think about that. Um, and then they outed him in the News of the World. Yeah, and I remember the headline. Secret Gay Love of AIDS Scare East Ender. And, of course, I, I lived, we lived in the East End. I was in EastEnders. So the, had Cohen had an AIDS scare? And there was an AIDS scare because uh, I think Barry wasn't well and they were all worried about Barry's health. And they put our address in the newspaper, apart from the number, and that afternoon a brick came through the window. But, you know... So, you... so did he have any... He didn't think, oh, God, what are we doing? There was no resentment from him or no kind of wavering in the commitment to what you decided as a couple to do? With you know family. what? And it, and, it, and it only, again, at this conference I was at this week, it, it, I only realised it this week. Not once did that brilliant man, Paul, 
ever say to me, because of what you've decided, look at what you've done to me. Look at the fact that I'm now only seen as Michael Cashman's boyfriend, Michael Cashman's other half, that I can't get job interviews now because of the association. My family, no, not once did he ever admonish me, have a go at me. And what about you? Did you ever think, you know, you mentioned the character Barry. Colin had this boyfriend, Barry. It was the first gay kiss in British soap. That's when the questions, it was questions in Parliament. I mean, the tabloids really went into overdrive. Yeah, and the Did moral you... campaigners as well. Yeah. Did you not think, fuck me, what are we doing? What have I unleashed? Well, you, you do for a moment. Then the, the nature of, the, of it being work, you get on with it. You've got to get in there and do another scene. You've got to then go home. You've got to think, am I going to get some verbal abuse on the way home? But, but did you even feel... But when you got home and you shut the door and you're with your boyfriend, did you... You know, if you're having bricks through the window, could you even feel safe and shut down and just be emotionally vulnerable there? Or did you feel constantly under attack? No, I felt... I felt secure. Um... And, uh, and interestingly, the postbag that I was getting, the letters were predominantly uh, supportive. Uh, what I didn't know, it was only given to me years later by the BBC, uh, the really vicious letters that they kept back. I was put on a, an extreme uh, right um, hit list, along with others like Sue Johnson from Brookside, who was uh, campaigning against Section 28 with us. Um, but... but uh, but, did they, but who was looking after you? If you were on that hit list and they knew you were on that hit list, did they get you security? No, I mean, of course not. So they just course. let you kind of go out there on a hit list and yeah. nobody... I, I, I mean... It... It's like, it's actually like... We talk about Section 28 being like the anti-propaganda law in Russia. This kind of context, this world you're describing, bricks through the window, being on a hit list, sounds like modern-day Russia with mafiosos and, you know, anti-gay groups left, right and centre having this power. Yeah, but um, I don't know. Uh, human nature is amazing. You know, we, we are, we're wired for survival. We, we're wired to self-deceive to get through difficult situations. Um, there was one Section 28 march that uh, erupted in a riot outside Downing Street, and I had to get back for rehearsals, so I jumped on the tube at Westminster, changed onto the Northern Line to get to uh, King's Cross, where our trains run from, to get to the studios. And I got on this train, this Northern Line. No, it wasn't a Northern Line, it doesn't matter. But suddenly, all of these football supporters <gasps> piled in, and it was packed. And I saw them all looking at me. And I kind of put my hand up, holding the handle the bar above to steady myself. And I heard, Colin, 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 this chant went up. And I thought, oh my God. And that kind of excitement, and this could turn really, really nasty. The next stop was King's Cross, and I always, because I'm a seasoned tube traveller, I know which part of the train is nearest to the exit, right? So I get yeah, off, yeah. and lo and behold, that exit at King's Cross is closed. The only other one is right at the other end, and I've got to walk through this sea of football supporters oh, waiting to get on the train. And as I'm going through, it parts like the Red Sea, and suddenly this voice went, AIDS carrier. 
And it's like this silence when you thought, is this when it all kicks off? And this other voice went, why don't you shut the fuck up? <laughs> and on I went. And it's, it's kind of amazing, an amazing example that, that because I think Colin was as ordinary as he was, he wasn't in your face. He was who he was. Well, and also, it's he, interesting when you talk about um, he had the AIDS scare, significantly, he ended up with something like... Um, multiple sclerosis. Multiple sclerosis, where it was Mark Fowler, the straight character, who got HIV. It was, you know, when you think about EastEnders, it was quite radical at the time, wasn't well, it? And it was clever, because what it did was it pandered to your prejudice, right? Let's take the... the when Colin was ill. His balance was going. He wasn't feeling well. It loads and loads of things. Dr. Legg finally revealed to Dr. him... Dr. Legg. Dr. Legg finally revealed to him that he had multiple sclerosis and he didn't want to tell Colin before because he thought Colin might not cope. What the BBC brilliantly did, and there was a piece in the sun and I sued them over it and won, um, was they, they made everyone believe that Colin had was HIV positive and was going to die of an AIDS-related illness. And then they completely challenged that by going, no, see, wrong, it's multiple sclerosis. I tell you what, soap operas since EastEnders and the Colin and the gay storylines in the 80s have been very gay-friendly in this country. They've got a brilliant track record, whether it's Coronation Street, you know, EastEnders, Emmerdale, Hollyoaks, practically everybody in Hollyoaks is gay or trans these days. And Brookside, we have to remember the oh, first, yeah, first gay character was actually in Brookside. And then they had the lesbian kiss, didn't they, shortly after, although that was received quite differently yes. because of the way lesbians were perceived. And, um... but, uh, the, but the first, the, uh, the first non-stereotypical um, portrayal uh, of a gay man and the, and the relationship was in EastEnders. Uh, the first gay kiss, although it was a peck on the cheek, uh, and then the second... Gay, gay kiss on the lips between Colin and Guido. Um, the next boyfriend, he had a few, didn't he? It broke the mould. He, he, <laughs> yeah. he, no, he only had two. Oh, right. um, it wasn't a bar fly. Um, but but it, it broke the mould. It broke the mould and it showed that the BBC had the courage to stand up against the onslaught of the media, the ignorance uh, of campaigners who wanted to hold the world back. Uh, and some religions who wanted to use their theology in a perverse way uh, to deny people's places in society. Right, so EastEnders broke the mould, as you say. Everything changed since then. But then last year, you went back to EastEnders to, you know, revisit the role of Colin. He was going back to the square because he was about to have a gay wedding... Um, there was a lot of reflection, wasn't there, on how much things have changed for gay people. So how was that like for you? To, what was that like to go back? Um, well, we've been talking about it uh, for over about 18 months. And I just I said, OK, yeah, I'd like to come back, to come back and do a, a cameo, brief appearance. Um, and... Um, it was wonderful to go back, and it was wonderful because they decided to bring me into a gay storyline. So, Colin, you're right to say he was there because he wanted Dot to go to his wedding, his, one of his best friends. Uh, and because of her religion, she was having problems reconciling herself to that. So it dealt with the discrimination that is still there within religious communities and, uh, and, uh, and the attitudes that... 
uh, are sometimes difficult to change. But what was wonderful was when Colin walked into the bar and was told that he was, had walked into a wake of a gay man who'd been beaten to death. And that was how the reflection came about, and it was lovely. Did this prompt any reflection for you? Because, you know, you said there was the line, I had someone, you had someone who was with you all the way through your time in EastEnders. When you go back, he's not with you anymore. Mm. He passed away after you'd been together for a long time. I can't remember. 31 years. 31 years. As he said, we've been together longer than my inside leg. (laughs) (laughs) So, um... So, yeah, I mean, that must have been an incredibly tough thing to do on a personal level. It was because he always wanted me to go back. Um, and, and interestingly, Paul died of a, uh, a very aggressive cancer that came back um, and within three weeks of... Uh, roughly three weeks of it being recognised, um, he, he died. And he died four days before I entered the House of Lords and... We were talking on the day of his death about how we might manage to get him there. He was at the Royal Marsden Hospital and they were incredible, absolutely incredible. Um, and I, looking back, you know, I, I, I don't know where I got the strength to, to, to go into the House of Lords on, on that Tuesday, him having died on the Friday morning. Going back into EastEnders... Uh, was strange, but you see, the great thing about being a mimic is I can talk to him and he can talk back. Oh. Um, and you, the, the amazing thing I've learned is that love only operates in the present tense. Once someone's loved you, you are always loved. Mm. Um, and it's the only thing that sustains you. It's only the only thing that gets you through your daily crises. Um, those days when I suffer from depression, when I think, I, what's the point? What's the point of hanging around? I haven't got the one person who would enjoy everything that I have much more than me. Um, it's by, by remembering and recalling the amazing contentment of 31 brilliant years um, and a man who taught me how to love myself. And the fact that he's gone is for me so difficult because I've got to learn to love myself without someone there telling me I should be loved. And that's why kids need to be brought up so differently in schools and in society. Because of their difference, they should be celebrated, not because they conform. But we, but we were taught for so long, um, maybe not so much people younger than us, but that gay men would not be loved. And, you know, as a community, we don't have a brilliant track record at long-term relationships. They're not something that people... Well, historically, anyway, associated with gay men. Um, do you think... This might seem a funny question, but do you think there is anything about your grief as a widower that is different for gay men, for you as a gay man, than any human being? No. It's It's the great leveller, isn't it? Love is the great leveller. Second uh, is grief. Um, 
But I, I know of a lot of long-term relationships in, uh, amongst gay men and particularly amongst uh, lesbians. Um, I just think we're not very good at singing about our successes as a community. We're very good at, at siphoning onto uh, a club mentality, a bar mentality. But, yeah. And I do that and I still hanker for it. And occasionally I will stumble into a, uh, a, a bar. But, uh, but, I, but, but I think maybe it, the choice is not about saying I'll have a short-term relationship, but so much mitigates against you being together. Well, it's also about perceptions, isn't it? You know, we were defined in the public eye by what we did sexually, not by the way we loved, which, as you say, isn't any different from the way a straight person loves. Yeah. But there was such a kind of fixation on the mechanics of gay sex. And then with the hysteria around the AIDS crisis, the consequences of that gay sex that suddenly became so demonised that the love was just kind of forgotten about. And, um, you know, it became about sex, sex, sex. And I do think it's about perceptions and how we then internalise those perceptions and expectations, you know, and how we then project ourselves to the world, as you say. Because there isn't anything that's different. Love is the great leveller, yeah. isn't it? And interestingly, Pride, it, its theme is love happens here. Well, look, I know, actually, quite a few gay men in particular who are, who are not happy with that phrase because they go, oh, that's about sex. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people will perceive love and sex as being the same thing. No, absolutely not. If only, if only they were, life would be a whole lot easier. Um, grief would, would, would disappear overnight. Um, so, um, so, yeah, I, 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 I often remind people um, that, uh, that, you know, you, they're obsessed with the sexual relationships, particularly of gay men, but they don't really want to hear about the emotional bond and the love between people. The love of comrades, yes, but the love of the one for the other as if you were the other. And interchanging places they can't quite get. You then mix into that, that amazing fusion of love and sex, the celebration of, uh, of your body with somebody else's. Um, and it blows most people's minds. And I've often, you know, if it didn't happen to me ever again, oh! I've been lucky. Michael Cashman, thank you very much for opening up on the personal front, the political front, the professional front. Thank you for your heroism. Well, well thank you. And thank you for listening to the, the wonderful planes that go overhead. And, and for some reason today, we've got speedboats going up and down the river. But that's the stunning thing about recording live. You can't control the world. And I think that's a metaphor, really. Uh, for politicians to uh, operate on the basis of. But thank you, I've enjoyed it. My pleasure. Michael Cashman there recorded at his home in London earlier this month. These podcasts are sponsored by the Great Britain Campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. Check out their website at great.gov.uk. And our co-sponsors are Jaguar, if you'd like more information on their products, then you can visit the website jaguar.co.uk or look out for them in the latest issue of Attitude magazine. I'll be back in a couple of weeks to let you know who my next special guest will be. 
For now, thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time on Attitude Heroes. Thank you.